1973, Brazilian scholar Paulo Freire wrote a book titled Education for Critical Consciousness. The book examines how education works and what it takes for knowledge to pass from teacher to student. Paula's main argument was that education shouldn't be thought of as all-knowing teachers simply pouring knowledge into empty-headed students. Instead, he suggested that it is only when teachers and students treat each other as equals in their capacity to learn and grow that knowledge is actually transferred as students participate and feel empowered. The ideas in Paula's book are easily applied to other areas where learning or teaching is happening, like within the nonprofit sector. Paulo and other similar thinkers have moved the sector to prioritize empowerment and participation when it comes to building capacity. This is the Nonprofit Experience, a podcast that presents candid conversations about the human experience of nonprofit work, and I'm your host, Sandy Sear. Keith Timko is the Executive Director and CEO of Support Center. Eddie Laporte is the Executive Director of the New Jersey Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. In this episode, the two professionals discuss how to push for effective capacity building, where funders and fundees work together as equals. We begin the episode with Eddie setting up their conversation. So what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, I thought we would talk about capacity building, right? And there's, so I think, some jargon associated with what right. that means. Right. Um, so I don't know about you, but I was thinking a lot as to, you know, what to do. I don't... I don't see it going away. I sort of feel like in a lot of this work, we don't like the terms that we use, but we don't have alternatives. Right. And so what do we do? So no, I've been thinking about that idea of capacity building and uh-huh. what it means at a, at a very local level for uh-huh. these organizations and how funders look at capacity building, which is different from the way nonprofits and faith and community-based organizations and even social enterprises look at sure. look at capacity building. It's a, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the I think the sexy part is getting the money, sure, and then actually implementing. Mm-hmm. But there isn't a conversation about the work behind what capacity building means for mm-hmm. these organizations and how challenging it is when you have limited staff, sure. limited understanding of the roles and responsibilities at different levels of the organization. And where do they start? They just got $20,000. What do you mean I have to go to a meeting? What do you mean I have to get a coach? What do you mean my board has to go to training? They didn't sign up for this, you know, stuff like that. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And mm-hmm. From my point of view, I, I, I keep it really simple. So we fund organizations. Mm-hmm. And there's certain paperwork that you need in order to do business with the state of New Jersey, mm-hmm. which are the you know the charity registration number, the business revenue number, the, uh, the IRS determination letter for your 501c3, your certificate of incorporation, and your certificate of standing, just to do business with the state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And, the and cha- pretty much any funder for yeah yeah and pretty much any funder. And the challenge at the at the most basic level for me is. How do I get these organizations to give me that basic information? If I'm not thinking about board training yet, mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about executive leadership training, I'm not thinking about mm-hmm. the me- mechanisms that you have, the checks and balances in the organization, I'm like, how can we get you mm-hmm. to get me the information mm-hmm. so we can contract with you in a way that's educational and not and not so overbearing? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've got Zoom and we did webinars and, mm-hmm. you know, we've had to teach these organizations how to navigate state agencies just to get that paperwork, right. just to communicate with the state agency and mm-hmm. figure out what are the limitations that they have that mm-hmm. prohibit them from getting these 
certain pieces of documents. And then as we started having this conversation about capacity building, I started saying, you know what, this is, I, th I think I think the, the term capacity building, like you said, it's, there's, it, everybody has a different definition for it. I, I think of it as learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, constant learning. You just have to learn and be willing to learn, and and so long as the leader of the organization is open to it, then it's a lot easier yeah. to talk about capacity building in a way that's palatable for them. Yeah. That's where I go. With that. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, just because I was thinking, like, what are some of the analogous systems? Mm -hmm. Like, and one was in education. You know, sort of because I think of this idea of organizational life cycles that. So to make sense without being too jargony, but like there's things that we expect of a five-year-old and then there's things that you would expect of a teenager and there's things you would expect of an adult. And oftentimes there's this mismatch, right? Where sort of an organization that's very early going, you sort of expect certain things. Mm -hmm. But that idea and then sort of the school piece is just all of the multifaceted aspects of a nonprofit. So it's not just finance, right? But it's also the interpersonal nature, it's the staffing, it's all of those pieces. Um, for us, I feel like if we didn't call ourselves a capacity builder, we would probably think of ourselves as being in the business of organizational development, right. which is also not particularly sexy. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's a rather unfortunate, you know. But we are sort of this kind of this system, like a like a school or like a university that focuses on those different dynamics. Right. I do want to shout out though that that piece about like offering proactively educational supports to help schools because I do feel like there's a little bit of the secret handshake component right. of nonprofit work, mm -hmm. right? And it's if I do have these things, if I'm more professional, then I get access to things. Right. And if I don't, so I do think like if you're sort of looking at it from an equity and inclusion frame, like as a funder, I think there does have to be an educational component to do those things mm -hmm. so that other groups can sort of learn how to access capital, right. you know, which I think is sort of a hugely important. I mean, there's lots of things I appreciate about kind of your approach, but I think that idea of like kind of funders that also sort of understand, I need to build some capacity to be able to have a broad spectrum of potential grantees. Without calling it capacity. Right, right, you can't. <laughs> right, with, 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 you know, it's, it's like I used to be a youth football coach. Mm -hmm. And initially, we would just run them, run the kids, run, 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 run. And then I had a seasoned coach mm -hmm. from another state where I used to go to these clinic. He said, you know, you can make them run and they can have fun and they won't even know that they're running. Mm -hmm. I said, how do you do that? And he goes, you know, when, you know, have relay races, do this, do that. So a lot of what I'm doing is, mm -hmm. I, th I, th I think it's a lot of hand-holding, mm -hmm. but it can be done in a way that doesn't make the organization feel incompetent, mm -hmm. where, where, where they can say, we are in this together and we're learning this mm -hmm. process together. And we have the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and the support center backing us up in right. a way that, that we've never had this type of support before. Right. I think that's the way it should go. Yeah, I like your sports analogy as well. It's, sort of, I, it's interesting. We do some of our work also involves it, it, executive coaching. Right. And I feel like there's this bias or this negative connotation associated with coaching, whereas like in sports, the idea of like, oh, you have a coach? That's terrible. Why would you possibly have that? Why would you possibly have someone who has expertise, wisdom, has been there before, partnered with you to show you the way? That's a terrible construct. Right. Um, you know, so part of what we've done is to sort of say like, hey, we do really good work. Uh, it's interesting. We just were part of a survey of groups across the country that look like us. And there's a pretty standard set of offerings. Like there's consulting, there's training, there's coaching, um, you know, different kinds of c capacity building, organizational development. But what we come up with was that a lot of these things felt transactional, mm -hmm. right? It was this sort of moment in time. And then it was like, somehow I've graduated and I'm going to figure it all out. 
And so we came up with that idea of a navigator as someone who's in, um, and it's also aligned very interestingly with some of the demographic shifts that are going on. We are finding that folks are leaving the sector. And finally, they're sort of saying like, you know what, it's time to turn the reins over to someone else, but they want to be helpful. Like it's what they've always done. And so could you come up with a program that more intentionally pairs them with organizations as an advisor, as a navigator? And so we've been doing that with Lewis uh, and Community Lifestyles. Which is our prototype and test. Which are prototype and test. And just to figure right. out, you know, right. is this going to work? Mm-hmm. My, my, what, what's happening with me and this idea of Project Atlas and capacity building infrastructure development, it's like well, communities, you say, yeah, we want this service and we give them the service and they say, well, we don't want that service, we want something else. And so you have to develop a market. And what I'm finding is that I have to develop a market of organizations that really believe that they need capacity building to move forward. Mm-hmm. Even even the organizations at the nascent level yeah. don't think they need capacity building. I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's a lack of understanding, a lack of lack of education. So to me it's 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 about making making the making the sector, especially that small niche group mm-hmm. of nascent mm-hmm. underdeveloped organizations, to understand that you know before you can get a grant or before you implement a program, you just have to have certain mechanisms in place. And so I am beginning to go out and I'll have conversations with I'm having one on one conversations because if I blast this out in an email, nobody's gonna read it. Sure. So it's it's really about developing a market and and awareness. It's almost like an educational awareness campaign mm-hmm. at a very low level to say, hey, listen, this is this will be good for your organization. Give it a try. Plus, you get to mm-hmm. use some funding to implement the pilot project. And right. so I, I'm beginning to get a lot of excitement about this. Okay. So we'll see what happens. Right. I mean, I got a lot of excitement last year, and right. we funded one. Yeah, I do want to name that tension though. So the work that we do, we have two kinds of ways that we do our consulting, coaching, workshops, mm-hmm. trainings. Like the one option is organizations will pay themse- themselves. Like they've bought into this idea that I need this, I'm willing to invest my own resources. Then there's the other dynamic where my funder, Eddie Laporte, says this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so now I sort of feel either beholden to Eddie to do this, I don't really value it in the same way, I sort of begrudgingly do that. I think kind of the approach that you take of trying to market it and sell mm-hmm. it, but that is a fundamental tension in our work, Yeah, is you know that sort of sense of ownership. And truly, there has to be that buy-in from organizations. And it's not just the money, right? It's the time. Um, I think there's um, just the competing demands that you have to make time for it. So. Right, right. And, and I think they have a challenging time balancing the... the the implementing of the program and the and the and the feel good moment that that gives you in terms of doing something in the community and the behind the scenes stuff that nobody sees. You mean that's not sexy? No, your no. tax form, <laughs> your IRS letter. I love Working it. Working with the pro bono uh, partnership, right? Oh, a desk audit with a pro bono attorney. That sounds Ooh. amazing. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. No, I get it. I get yeah. it. It's not cool, right? It's not. The- but the idea here is to get them to a place where they have they get experience working with a funder, mm-hmm. working with a coach who has experience, working with a support center that has all these resources in place, working with the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives that supports them and understands that, you know, this, po- this pilot project that you're implementing may not be, may not work. And so we, we, we give them the opportunity to pivot. My concern is that not many funders think this way mm. about pivoting sure. and 
rethinking yeah. what the funding should be used, how to rearrange the budget in a way that makes sense for the community. And so and so I, I don't know if they'll have ever have that experience with another funder when, you know, three months into six months into the program, they'll say, hey, we need to pivot and the funder says, No. Mm-hmm. This is what you got funded for. And I and I think that we as funders need to be open to that sure. idea of pivoting. Mm-hmm. Pivoting is 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 essential in the commercial in the, in the commercial market. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to pivot to move your product or service to a to a market that makes sense. If not, you're going to fail. And so I think we need to be able to get there. But I need to we need to get these organizations to a place where they understand when to pivot. Right. You know when to come, but when they when they gather enough data. And I can tell you when not to do that. it. Right. I'm really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I usually wait too long. Yeah, right. <laughs> stage organizations there's inherently the numbers are biased against you yeah like that folks aren't going to make it but then you start doing that work and making grants to large organizations and i feel like it's that but for test mm-hmm. you know like but for my funding would they been able to do x y or z right and then you're sort of a, a much smaller fraction of their overall operating budget and mm-hmm. we have sort of have the same kind of notion when we think about the groups that we work with we work with organizations with 200 million dollar budgets and groups with ten thousand dollar budgets mm-hmm. and i think the impact is greater you know, but then there's also the organizations that don't make it. Um, so, I, you know, I think we just sort of have this, at least for us, this uh, diversified portfolio, right. right, of organizations, and what can, how can we meet groups where they are, mm-hmm. you know, across that spectrum. I think that's what capacity building, especially, is all about, is meeting the organizations where they're at. Right. right. But my experience is also that nonprofits and the need for capacity building isn't isn't just for the smaller organizations. I've no. worked with large organizations that maybe at, at the executive level, they get it, they understand it, but that trickle down yeah. of knowledge to mm-hmm. subordinates and divisions, yeah. it's not there. Right. And the challenge is, okay, how do you get these these larger organizations with you know, a functioning board and they do minutes and mm-hmm. have the executive director that implements the policy and he has or she has a deputy director and they have directors. How, how do you make them understand that at the program level, you're, there's a lot of gaps missing? Sure. And, 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 and how do we get, how do we get them to right. work? Because, right. because, you know, when I look at, listen, I have larger, so we funded 56 organizations last year. Okay small, medium, and large organizations. Of the 56 organizations, 48 didn't have the proper paperwork mm. in place in order to upload, in order for to, for them to do business with the state of New Jersey. Mm. And that includes small, medium, and large organizations. So th- that gives me an, a, a, a really a really good view of, wait a second, you know, capacity builder just isn't for because the idea is that capacity building is for these smaller yeah. emerging organizations. <clears throat> no, it's I don't not. think it is. I don't think it is either. But how do we get the larger organizations to? Because a funder will say, "Well, I'm going to fund this organization. They have a they have multiple funding streams. They have 300 staff people. They have 500. They have five million dollars in, 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 in the budget. Well, they sh- they should be able to provide impact." My experience is that 
their ability to, to provide impact is just as great as or, or equal to the organization that has no capacity, limit, you know, hardly any capacity in place. And it's all about the numbers. And so how do we, how do we move the needle that way as mm-hmm. well from thinking, oh, if you're larger, then you must have it. Right. The other analogy that I've been like thinking a lot about is this idea of an organizational Fitbit. And sort of like, what's our sort of organizational equivalent of steps per day or standing heart rate? But then how do we sort of have the discipline to kind of keep doing that work? And I think it's applicable, large and small. Like there's tools here. We actually co-locate with what now is Candid, that Foundation Center GuideStar merged. Um, And they have this assessment tool for startup organizations that kind of gives you this red light, green light dashboard that sort of becomes a checklist that you can work off of. So I think there's like some notion of like, hey, we just need to kind of take stock of this and then come up with a strategy, mm-hmm. some of which is not particularly sexy again, right? right? It's I have to go to trainings, I have to get in compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's like other op- opportunities that I get excited about. Like, so, so many organizations struggle with either A, understanding their finances, or B, communicating those to board members. Now, I don't know how many finance professionals exist in the world, but I'm pretty sure like you live next to one or you're related to one. So right. could you just recruit them to your venture, to your effort? Mm-hmm. And say, can you just help me to figure out how to communicate our financials in some some intelligible way, right. either to the staff or the board? Or there's like other people, whether it's organizational culture mm-hmm. or marketing or right. communication. So right. I feel like there's this untapped potential as board members, volunteers, um, you know, where you can go and find some of those supports. Right. Whereas like if we were to ask all the organizations that we work with, what do they want training and support around? It's always fundraising. Always. Always fundraising. And you're like, you know, there's all of these developmental building blocks that roll up to successful fundraising, like things like plans, like an engaged board, right, right, like right. clear programs that deliver results, that we have some notion <laughs> that they make a difference in the world, not just that, you know, Eddie showed up. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, he thought it was the worst program he'd ever attended in right, his right. life, but, <laughs> but he was, he was there. <laughs> he did sign the sign-in sheet. I think the other thing about... Um, you know, this conversation, these organizations that are young and that are just forming, we need to also look at them in terms of a lean startup mm-hmm. and, and, and not overburden them with all this these other layers that they can't handle now. Mm-hmm. Let's say, okay, this is where you're at. Right. You, do you need an environment board? Do you, do, right. you know, is, is that something that might work for you? You know, is 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 that necessary right now? I don't, I, I don't know, but right. I, I'm beginning to open up to other other models sure. that work for young startup organizations and try to transfer those concepts into the nonprofit sector, especially with the startup organizations, and begin to figure out how are they operate because a lot of them do impactful work. They don't even know that they're doing impactful work, but I know that. You know, they're sending people to rehabs, they're, 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 they're moving people off of gang, gangs, they're improving academic performance, they're restoring families, you know, the mm-hmm. fathers and the mothers and, you know, the grandparents, you know, they're moving the elderly wherever they have to move them to. They're using unique and different ways of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of implementing, creative ways of implementing these, these approaches in ways that funders um, have never thought of before. And mm-hmm. so I'm saying, well, why can't we help them operate and become more efficient right where they're at. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Maybe that's something to think about. There's 
sort of this notion of best practice or how things are done. I think the board piece really strikes me, right? Because I think people get hung up on the parliamentary procedure, what minutes should look like. But I'm pretty clear. Like, do you just take, make a list of what people said they were going to do? Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, That's at a board it. meeting. And then do you hold people accountable? Do you remind them? Do you help to facilitate that? Right. And then I think the other sort of structure or convention around boards and board reporting is this idea of I'm communicating work that's happened. And it doesn't have to happen in a certain kind of way. Right. Right. But I pull together information for funders. I send you a report, Eddie, but no one else within my organization ever reads that report, ever sort of thinks about this. And some of it's just like just communicating and sort of broadening that loop so that more people are able to touch those things. Right. Like right. I think so like I think there's just some very clear communications things mm -hmm. and I think some very clear project management things that right. I think are broadly applicable. Right. But then I think there's other stuff where you just try not to have people get too hung up on this. Particularly I think in the early going it can be discouraging where you sort of developmentally, right? Like we're a five year old organization. Like, we're just learning how to read and write. Mm -hmm. And then you keep showing me or sending me case studies of organizations that are so fully evolved that there's a Harvard Business School case study. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not particularly, like, inspiring. No. You know, plus we're doing some really cool stuff yeah, you know, that we want to lift up. And mm -hmm. there's those other kinds of pieces, mm -hmm. you know, which that actually starts to touch on some of the equity and inclusion work that we've been doing. Just kind of thinking about, like, do we, are we sort of bought into some very clear structures and norms? Right you know, that fundamentally limits access, you know, stymies creativity, mm -hmm. you know, because of whether it's like a white dominant or white uh, supremacist culture, whatever the case may be. So, right. you know, so as though this work is not already hard enough. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. By the right. way, let's also think about how it perpetuates all of these like structural issues around access, mm -hmm. around norms, about how it's supposed to be done. Right, right. And who is deciding how it's supposed to be done? Oh, yeah. yeah. Two, two organizations that is is uh that's a latino based organization mm -hmm. right run by you know board members or advisory or community residents or latinos and you know that how they operate it's cultural mm -hmm. carries a lot of cultural norms and then when you come in with capacity and I, i'm constantly thinking about this when you come in with capacity building from the from this theoretical world mm -hmm. It doesn't mesh with the culture of the organization and or the culture of the community moving forward. So I, I think there's a lot of pushback mm -hmm. on that as well. Mm -hmm. on that, you know, and, and, and when I'm thinking about capacity building, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, if I'm dealing with an organization that's culturally sensitive and is comprised of the residents of that particular community, and I'm coming in with this new model mm -hmm. to say, you know, move your stuff out of the way and just plop this in its place. And then I need you to function in this new reality. That new reality doesn't make any sense to them because they don't understand the, the thinking that goes to connect those dots. And I think that when you're thinking about capacity, I think we also need to think about that as well. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, 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 you know, do we take this, this capacity building theoretical construct, mm -hmm. which in and of itself can be biased mm -hmm. because they didn't, they had nothing to do with this construct. Mm -hmm. And then now we then plop it in. I, when I have conversations with organizations, they say, well, why do we have to do that mm -hmm. since this is working for us? Right? And as a funder, I'm saying, yeah, it's working for you, but the theory says that you got to do it this way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm beginning to move away from that type of theory and say, maybe, maybe we can work that way. 
maybe it can't work that way for you. So now the issue is, you know, what does capacity building look mm-hmm. when you when you take that into account, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it doesn't look like mm-hmm. what we've been talking about this whole time. It looks like for every organization, it's a little different, mm-hmm. completely different. Sure. So long as they're able to, you know, be impactful in the community, mm-hmm. right? Show transformational change, mm-hmm. then then the idea of capacity building is not this vanilla concept anymore. It is going to be this multi-dimensional, multi-colored right. model of it works for them, but it may not work for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, figure out what's going to work for you so right. that you right. can move forward. And and we're going to be here to, to listen, we're going to be here because we want to learn. I want to learn from them. Like, I want to learn from these lean organizations. Yes, yes. So then I can go to the next organization and say, well, you know what? Yeah. You know, uh, 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 this organization over here, they kind of sort of set up like yours. This is kind of sort of how they did it. You know, you might want to yeah. figure this out. Right. You know? Yeah, but I think it's fundamentally, right? It's that dialogue that exists. Right. You know, and right. we structure, we, we definitely uh, struggle with that issue, right? Where we as support center coming in, we're not the experts. Right. I don't even know what that means anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we can... Ask questions, you know, sort of figure out. And I'd like to think, I'm still learning, right? right? There's this idea of sort of awake, woke, and working, you know, where I'm like, I don't know. Some days I still feel asleep. Right, right, right. Some right, days right. maybe I'm working for racial justice <laughs> somewhere in between. But just asking questions, and I think questioning some of the paradigms, yeah. right? And, and that dialogue, at least sort of if your default comes from that appreciation of what folks are trying to do and then understanding I might be learning something new right whether it's generational differences whether mm-hmm. it's because of like these, these folks like see the community in a different way or they right. experience things right you know in a different way right right and, uh, and, and how do they bring that right right to 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 develop a functioning organization that functions for them yeah now not functions for us but functions for them right and then how can we help them move forward yeah on that level so yeah. that's, that's I will say as a trainer though it is interesting when you're like I'm going to talk today some of this may actually be a white supremacist paradigm <laughs> so right. I just want right. to like know white privilege there's or... a lot of privilege going on here there's a lot, there's of, a lot of assumptions there's a lot of assumptions <laughs> but I think folks are like oh my god how am I possibly going to like ha- have this conversation right. and some of it like what we've realized is like you just have years of your own work to do, kind of exploring your own biases and being able to have like authentically be vulnerable, right? Like putting it out there and being like, "Look, I've, I've not figured this out, right? You know, right. but I right. do." But I sort of feel like as though, like you know, we started this conversation with capacity building and what is it? Is mm-hmm. there a better word for it? Right, 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 you know? right. And yeah. now we need it to be a more we need a more just version, right, of whatever that thing is that we still haven't figured out what to call. And I think the just version of it is mm-hmm. it's going to be independently created by these organizations if mm-hmm. we just allow them mm-hmm. to 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 embrace their, their cultural norms and mm-hmm. develop that organization that mm-hmm. fits with them. Right. Some boards are dictatorial, some boards are communal. So, okay, then, you know, make, make, you know some yeah. boards are more democratic, some boards are less. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that is is is, is, is the culture, and not, not every, you know, not every aspect of a culture is, is transferable to business either. I get all of that. Yeah. But what works, what are the commonalities mm-hmm. in that particular culture Right. That allows this organization to operate in such a way mm-hmm. that that makes sense for them. Yeah, you know. So thanks again. Thank you, Eddie. You know, you, you have no idea how many times we do this, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's usually more ambient noise. <laughs> we come up with some great ideas, yeah. <laughs> don't we? We do. We do. 
That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was edited by our producer, Preston Whitwer. Shalina Omar is our digital director, and Andre Tidwell is our production assistant. All of our music was composed by David Mueller. I'm the executive producer and your host, Sandy Sear. This show is a listener-supported project of the Philanthropy Journal. You can find show notes and access previous episodes at philanthropyjournal.org. And don't forget, if you can, plant some of your own herbs, never pour paint down the drain, and follow us on Twitter at P-H-I-J-O.